Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is based on one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That question awakened something new in me and began to put me on a journey into the, looking into the history of my faith, into my faith in more detail, and the, the scope from the beginning of the biblical canon up through the early church fathers and beyond the Reformation and, and church history and everything in between. It was in that journey that I encountered the Catholic Church and began reading some Catholic theologians and began to realize that what I thought I knew about Catholics was based in large part on misinformation and more often than not on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap, the gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week, I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, I am joined by Dr. Margaret Turek to talk about something that I think is absolutely fascinating, and it's the subject of the atonement. And she's here to give what I'm calling the most compelling case for the atonement ever. A fully Catholic understanding of why Jesus came, died, rose from the dead, what that all meant in the history of salvation. This is, I think, such a compelling picture. And if you're like me, if you're an evangelical or a non-Catholic Christian who had a certain understanding of the atonement, of justification or satisfaction or, or the whole salvation history, well, this, I think, paints the most compelling picture I could have imagined. I talk at one point in, in the podcast, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, that as an evangelical, I was fitting together pieces of different theologies. Well, here is the case for the Catholic. Catholic theology of something like the atonement that fits together Old Testament, New Testament, salvation history, who God is, all those pieces so well formed, so well fit together. It's a fantastic conversation. I think you will love it. We had such a good time. She's going to come back for sure, already promised, in the future because (laughs) it was that good. This conversation and all others are brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic and our one-time sponsors at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. I have mentioned this before, friends, but it's not my full-time job. It's a struggle. Some weeks I have time to do this and the, the finances to get this thing going and, 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 and growing every single week. So you guys who underpin this show have a special place in making this thing happen week after week. And if you want to join that crew of people, the links are in the show notes. And please to consider helping this show to keep on going and become a patron or even a one-time donor towards the work of this show. And I thank you in advance. Now, without any further ado, here's my fantastic conversation, the most compelling case for the atonement, what Catholics believe about why Jesus came, the salvation history, the story of God. It's fantastic. (laughs) With Dr. Margaret Turek, please listen and enjoy.
Hey friends, welcome back to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. I want to remind you, if you're listening, uh, please do leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. That helps to push the podcast out to new people. And if you are watching on YouTube, thank you for watching. Make sure you subscribe to this channel, hit the button, and uh, so you get notified when new videos come out. And please do share this with some friends who you think might need to hear this or like to hear this. This is going to be a really thrilling episode, and I know that for a fact, because before I hit the buttons to start this thing, we were already having a great conversation, so it's only going to get better, I'm sure. I am joined by Dr. Margaret Turek. She is Professor of Theology and Chair of Dogmatic Theology at St. Patrick's Seminary and University. She has a doctorate in Sacred Theology from the University of Fribourg in Switzerland, and for our purposes here today, the author of Atonement, Soundings in Biblical, Trinitarian, and Spiritual Theology, out from Ignatius Press. Dr. Turek, thank you so much for being here on the show. I am very excited. Welcome and hello. Keith, thank you for having me. Uh, I've, as you yourself admitted, I've been enjoying this conversation even before uh, you've begun recording. Yeah. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, thank you so much. You know what? If it goes downhill, at least we've had fun for the first part. We I wish certainly that we, have. Yeah, the listeners won't uh, won't enjoy that part of it, but they can just hear the downhill. <laughs> I don't think that it will. I want to ask you, first of all, the origin of this book, Atonement. I know that it's something that that permeated a little bit for, or, or what's, what's the right word? When you, I... When you, I <laughs> <laughs> As a girl, I used gestation. This book, this book had been yes. in just gestation yes, for decades, for decades, really. Um, and I, I trace it back to uh, to a personal experience I had. Um, I had just come off a three day silent retreat and um, was. Uh, gathered with my friends in this parlor and we were allowed to speak for the first time in several days. So there was a lot of chatter in the room. <laughs> and I just was sitting there um, on the armrest of a chair. And as my dear friend to my left began to speak, um, out of courtesy to her, I glanced her way and my eyes fell on a crucifix that was hanging on the opposite wall. And Keith, I can't explain why it was at that moment. I had been um, raised Catholic, gone to mass on a regular basis. I went to Catholic schools all my life. Crucifix had been hanging on the walls of my bedroom, the classrooms, etc. I don't know why. It was at that hour, but by simply glancing upon the crucified one, beholding the pierced one, I, I had a, an encounter with God that radically and enduringly changed my life. One thing I want to add here, because it's just God is so great in doing this. What one gift to there were many gifts, but one minor great gift was that I learned thereby what God has to give does not rely on our own efforts. It wasn't like I was engaged in no. all these spiritual exercises or finding the right pose, you know, bodily position or humming the right mantra. I had shown up. Yeah. I was generous enough to follow God's call to attend this retreat 
and be present, alert, and awake. But when the gift came, it was clearly his own initiative. So I would never, ever doubt that or imagine that this was something self-generated. Anyway, one of the things, the most important things that I, I knew immediately, that intuitive knowledge uh, of God was that, number one, I had been under the influence of a false and distorted image of God the Father until then. I also came to realize that Christ crucified, the pierced one, is the consummate revelation of this God who was rich in mercy. And I came to know the truth of my favorite line of St. Augustine's. He has many great ones, but my favorite is this, because it sums up Again, what I gleaned at that moment, St. Augustine says in one of his sermons, I think it's number 88, he says our one task in life. Now, Keith, he's saying our one task, not, hey, if you can get around to it. <laughs> our one task in life is to heal the eyes of our heart so that we can see God. Oh. And at that moment, the eyes of my heart were, were healed. Now, that healing, that therapeutic process would continue and is still continuing. But that moment changed everything. And thereafter, all I wanted to do was see more. And so I entered a Carmelite community. You know, the Carmelites, the Carmelite charism combines uh, a life of contemplation and a life of penance or atonement. All right, you see how this is all <laughs> coming together. So I, I joined this Carmelite community and I spend six years receiving wonderful spiritual formation and that uh, primarily took the form of Standing at the foot of the cross uh, between, I kind of elbowed my way in there, between Mary and the beloved disciple, gazing on the crucified one, on the pierced one, and continuing uh, to allow God to heal the eyes of my heart so that I can see him. But in seeing him, Keith, I also could not not speak of him. And so soon enough, after six years, I discerned I had to leave and study <laughs> theology more and then teach and be able to help, be, a, be a, a kind of a servant of this process of helping others to heal the eyes of their hearts so that they can see God. And this book is what I, I do throughout this 270-page text is once again to plant my feet or maybe fall on my knees before the crucified one. And I, I, I attempt to illumine this figure of the crucified one against the uh, historical horizon of biblical re revelation. So seeing how it was prefigured, all the patterns and images that lead to this, this pierced one on Calvary, but then I also uh, bring into the framework 
the, not only the prophets and martyrs of the Old Testament that, that prefigure Christ, but also the saints and martyrs of the new uh, covenant that um, are disciples of Christ and in full awareness um, and with full consent are drawn into uh, the mission and mystery of the Son who atones for our sins uh, in the cross event. Um, and then I also, besides illuminating the mystery of this, of the crucified one, against the historical horizon of biblical revelation, I also illuminated against the eternal horizon of the Trinity. Uh, hence, it's a big mouthful, but even the, the subtitle here, soundings. So you just, we're just diving deep. Soundings in biblical, Trinitarian, and spiritual theology, because all of this, us healing the eyes of our heart to see God in Christ crucified, to see God at work in Christ crucified, and thereby realizing that we're given the, the great gift, the fruit of this atoning event, the Holy Spirit, who's poured out in our hearts such that we're enabled to get up <laughs> and participate in this mission, this work of atonement to the glory of God, to the glory of Christ, uh, and for the salvation of the world. So that's, I hope I've answered your question. And then some. That's fantastic. Some? That's fantastic. Thank you. I have to say, I have a soft spot for Carmelites. I saw one levitate, I swear, at Mass one, once. They were sitting a couple pews over, and it was a, <laughs> it was a Saturday, Sunday night at 7 p.m., like the last call Mass in the city, and I was there. The kids were in bed and raced over there and half half awake. Just, you know, I'm, I'm there, and I'm fantastic salvation of the Mass. Very, very beautiful. I look over, and these Carmelite nuns kind of file in. And I swear, I, I swear, Dr. Turek, I looked over, and one of them was rising off the ground. And I looked again, and I thought, did I, did I see that? <laughs> but I swear that I did. So I've always had a, a soft spot since then for, for Carmelites. And an, and a, not a soft spot, but a deep interest in this topic, in atonement. And I'll tell yes. you where this comes from for me. I wrote an article a number of years back on my, on my blog about this topic because I was now, my wife and I are evangelical converts to Catholicism. Uh, I have a kind of a non-denominational Baptist Pentecostal kind of tradition. And lots of listeners and viewers of this show come from that same background. And I was reading around Easter time, reading to our kids from this book called the Jesus Storybook Bible, I think it's called, by Sally, Sally Lloyd-Jones. And wonderful, it's a beautiful illumination of the story of Christ, like the the, the salvation history. From, from But as I dug deeper <laughs> into this book, you, you begin to see that it's from a very certain lens. So you get to get to sections near near Easter, near the crucifixion, and, and, and near, you know, on, on Good Friday, and what is this, this children's kind of illustrated Bible takes a very strange, dark turn and begins to talk about how Jesus was punished and the Father ran from him and he took our sin and he was, and it, the, the language, the language just became kind of scary and, and horrific in this children's book. And I thought, you know what, I don't really know what Catholics believe. I'd been a Catholic for, at that mm -hmm. time, maybe four or five years, and I thought, this doesn't sit right with me as a, as a Catholic. This is very dark language, very punishment-based language. That, and it, just, it heaped it on. It was, it was really excessive. And I, 
So I go, I should probably find out what we believe as Catholics. And I began to do some reading, and it and turns out that was a question that a lot of Catholics, or those who were looking at the Catholic faith, had about, about things like the atonement. There's perspectives out there in evangelical Christianity and in Protestant Christianity that we don't, as the person in the pew, often think about or, or talk about or wrestle with. There are these underlying assumptions of, of why Christ had to die the way he did and why you know the Father sent the Son and, all, and, and on and on that we really don't often engage with very deeply. And so, mm-hmm. so <laughs> as I began to engage the topic, I thought, wow, this is different than I, than I had ever understood as a, as a Protestant Christian. Mm-hmm. And your book comes along and I thought, okay, here's a great chance to really look at this in depth because I know there are so many listeners out there who, this is really a live, a live question they have. What do mm-hmm. Catholics believe about yes. this? What yes. do I believe about right. this as I look right. into how, I've, how I read the scriptures in my relationship with, with, with Christ? Right? Often you don't even think about that. But yeah, this, this is where I where I come in. So that's where I engage with this topic. And so I want to begin, if we can, on the, on the ground floor, but maybe, okay. so I don't know, hopefully it's not too big of a question. I, I don't mm-hmm. want to, you know, the, the, your book answers this question, I think in the whole book, but if we can begin by just, what do we mean when we say atonement? Can we start off by just kind of defining that word without, I mean, I, that could take 200 and something pages. Yeah, I, yes. I, under, I understand, but All right. is there an easy, easy answer? Because I have a million more questions for you. So easy answer. Well, of course not. No, Keith. What I would, what I want to, um, what I'm going to do is, is actually um, sort of <laughs> follow follow my own path in the book. Where and very early on the ground floor, I do say, you know, we're going to begin with a fairly general notion yeah. of atonement. But the operative word here is begin. And so in the book, I begin by understanding atonement as a way of eliminating sin or a way of cleansing from sin, eliminating sin, effacing it, dealing with it. Okay. Now, I grant there are a string of uh, common synonyms, uh, terms that are often used as synonyms for atonement. Um, Words like reparation, um, satisfaction, expiation in particular come to mind. Sometimes I've heard um, the term atonement explained in terms of its outcome or goal as at one meant. You might have heard that as well. Um, okay. But what I would like to uh, um, acknowledge for your reader, for your listeners' sake, and hopefully readers of my book soon enough, <laughs> is that my f- four guides. By the way, I, I really depend on the uh, theological insights, the the research and writings of four guys. Should I introduce uh, them? Sure. Yeah. yeah. These four guys—they're my quartet. Uh, there is Pope John Paul II. Uh, Pope Benedict XVI and his younger self, Joseph Ratzinger, uh, Father Hansers von Balthasar, and Father Norbert Hoffman. Uh, so I rely on their um, contemplative theology of atonement. And 
I'm drawn to them because I share this same sensibility and this 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 same um, uh, sort of intuitive approach or contemplative approach to doing theology. You won't find these guys or me um, focusing overly much on a word, say, and and trying to analyze the origin and and history of the word's meaning. My guides are not etymologists, all right? So it's not about, there's a place for that in, in theological uh, studies and especially in biblical studies. But my guides are not so interested in the etymology of the word atonement, its origin and history. But my guides, to my mind, my guides are more like choreographers than etymologists. And what I mean by that is a choreographer spells out pattern or movement of dancers. You're not dealing with sort of this, like a word, like a static object that's under investigation. But a choreographer is attempting to spell out something dynamic, something in in movement. And indeed, usually, a movement that involves two partners, then there's a lead dancer, and, and then there's the corresponding dancer. And you watch this couple, uh, this reciprocal movement will um, exhibit particular patterns. Well, what my theologians have done is as they comb through the Old Testament and the New, <clears throat> they discern and then trace out this pattern, this dynamic pattern of reciprocal work, reciprocal love at work, that will eventually take the form of the pattern of atonement, rather, I should say, um, forgiveness, atonement, forgiveness and atonement. Um, So what you're going to see me do in my book is not provide a glossary of terms. I don't try to standardize theological vocabulary. I try, again, you'll notice of the, the imagery of my book is very much on, on gazing or seeing. So we are gazing upon the, the movement of these dancers, a lead dancer and a corresponding dancer, who move in, supposedly, harmonious union, okay, um, so that's what my book is about. And we'll get to soon enough, well, whenever you want. What I want to show is that atonement is the work, not of the lead dancer. That's forgiveness. The, the lead dancer, the, the lover, the initiating lover, the God and father of Israel, and the, 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 God, the God and father of Jesus Christ is the lead dancer. And his forgiving love, and it's forgiving from the start. His forgiving love takes the lead, has the initiative, and aims with unswerving commitment to move his partner, his covenant partner, to move in filial fashion, in mirroring, in a mirroring manner, uh, in such a way that when the lead lover, uh, with his forgiving love, engenders in his partner, his beloved partner, a corresponding and mirroring movement of love 
in the in the father, in the lead lover, that work of love is called forgiveness. In the partner, the filial beloved, that work of love, engendered love, mirroring responsive love is called atonement. So, whoa, what day is it? What I'm already showing, meaning to bring to light here is that atonement is, it's a work of love. It's a work of love primarily. And not merely a penalty, but a work of love. And granted, this work of love is going to be enabled. The filial beloved is going to be empowered by the forgiving lover. Empowered to bear, endure the effects of sin. Sin's consequent punishments, that the word will come into play, but we have to be careful about it. The, the, the filial beloved will be enabled, empowered by the paternal, you know, lover to assert its filial love against sin by bearing it, by enduring and bearing away the effects of sin the consequent punishments of sin. Uh, But notice still, punishment is involved, so to speak, because sin has consequences, baneful effects that need to be dealt with. But what is so important for us to realize is the only way those effects, the, the penalties for sin, are efficaciously dealt with, atoned for, is if they're dealt with by the power of filial love, filial love. And what's more, filial love is always generated love. It's love that always points back to a fathering source, uh, an initiating lover, that lead dancer. So we ought not to confine our notion of atonement to one-sidedly to just even the the covenant partner if that covenant partner is to atone for sin that partner must be enabled to do so by the forgiving love of god infusing charity infusing love in the heart of his filial beloved by the power of which love, then on the beloved side, sin's effects can be born, endured, and indeed thereby eliminated. And of course, there's more to it. We're taking kind of baby steps, but I hope we're moving forward. Oh, my goodness. Are we moving forward? Because there is so much. <laughs> That's incredible. I'm going to get through no questions I have here, but this is absolutely <laughs> delightful. I hope that listeners I already can get a sense of the, the the richness of a topic like this. And one of the things that I think makes people feel uncomfortable sometimes is the element of mystery involved yes. in this, right? One of the things that, one of the words that you're often coming back to as I re- read this book is the word mystery, right? And that makes people, yeah. I think, who are used to having things spelled, who are used to opening their Bible and reading the, reading the, the Bible and going, yep, that's what this means here, this thing means here, this is what this means here, and un, un, unpacking it just like that, very yes. straightforward. Yes. You, you become uncomfortable with 
idea of mystery. But wrapped up in this, from yes. the Catholic perspective, is a lot yes. of mystery, right? Yes, yes. And by mystery, of course, we don't mean something that is inherently unintelligible, yeah. you know, or irrational or sheer nonsense. By mystery, we're talking about that ever, ever greater living God, um, our God. And it's the God of the Bible is a living God. And he, he simply cannot be mastered. It, it, we can't wrap our intellectual arms around him and claim to have uh, exhausted uh, his truth and and what shall we say concentrated it down into our our, our little standard definitions. Our definitions, uh, many are authoritatively true, but but there's but they're about the living God and the loving God. They're about that holy other subject who who in showing himself to us enables us to finally begin to see something of his mystery. So I guess what I'm trying to say is the way my authors speak, use the, the uh, language of mystery, it's, it's closely coupled with the language of life. This is a living God. It means to accentuate this God is personal. He's personal, not merely an object to be defined, but a subject of who who invites us to know him and, and, and whose, whose living reality is so infinitely rich that we will never tire of exploring him. Just, just like a, a, a beloved never tires of exploring even to the mere face of, of her lover her spouse. Does that make sense? <laughs> That's what mystery is. It's not that it, it lacks intelligibility. It's just that what you, the more you see, the more you see, there's more to see. And it's all meaningful. It, it's all intelligible. But because it's the reality of this infinite lover, it infinitely exceeds our mental grasp and, and manipulation sort of that, that's what I mean to say. <laughs> Very well said. I think that's fantastic. Well, where I wanted to go next, and I'll let you be the guide, though, is begin to talk about the, where we see the atonement in the Old Testament, because this is not something just defined to the cross that kind of came out of nowhere, right? It, no. You begin to unpack this yeah. and show us kind of uh, the, the roots of atonement in kind of the history of, of salvation, I guess, the, the, that, that story. Right. So yes. it makes sense to kind of begin there and, and may touch on some points that help to then kind of, kind of foreshadow and illuminate the, the ultimate. I don't, I don't want to run out of time, but, but does it I make know. sense? Does it make sense to go there next for a little bit? Sure. Sure. We can we can go there next. All right. So I, I do stop at start with the Old Testament, uh, of course, uh, because that's God's uh, special um pedagogical sort of approach. He's priming us to be able to see uh, what he is showing us uh, about himself and his loving work on our behalf uh, in the New Testament. So, okay, I first talk about um, uh, sin, the biblical notion of sin or sin in the Old Testament. And what I do, and I'll try to sum this up very quickly, I, I rely again on other scholars, biblical scholars and so on, and it's clear to them that the biblical notion of sin in the Old Testament 
is not simply um, an ethical fault. It, it's not, it doesn't simply mean the breaking of a, a code of conduct or of a rule. It's not simply, say, failing to live up to Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics, as, as, as important as all those things are. Sin is that and more <laughs> in the Bible. Sin is, needs to be understood within the framework of this interpersonal relationship. Sin is boils down to sin is the refusal of the chosen partner, the covenant partner, to exist in this intimate coexistence with God. It's the refusal to let God father his son. It's a refusal to let God, the father of Israel, shape and form his son to be God's living image in the world. Such a true and authentic image of God, Yahweh, that the other nations, no one has ever seen God, but the other nations upon seeing Israel and Israel's way of living and acting would come thereby to see and know something of Yahweh, the true God, and want in, you know, and want in on this dance. So sin is a refusal to exist in this intimate coexistence with God. It's to like break away from God's embrace and to just try to do your own thing. More than that, it typically is in the Old Testament. The, the partner runs after other lovers <laughs> and starts to imitate their, their way of being. All right, the notice sin then is this. It's this rupturing of this reciprocal relationship of love. It's a, a deliberate uh, separation from God, distancing oneself from God. It means, Yahweh himself says, it's to forsake him, to spurn him, to flee from him. Though the sinner then is someone who's more than a rational being. The sinner is someone whom God regards as his beloved child, as his chosen son. So sin has to be situated and understood in this incredible, astonishing relationship. Notice two sin's effects. What are sin's effects then? Sin's effects uh, it can be boiled down to this, this God estrangement. It's the partner who resists the embrace, who turns away, spurns God's uh, love, and refuses to respond by, in, by their manner of living, by their conduct, to be a mirror, you know, the, the corresponding dancer, to be the mirror image of God. Um, so that's the primary effect of sin is this, this what was meant to be a, a relationship of reciprocal love, so intimate and so authentic that the co- covenant partner's role to play was to keep its face fixed on God's face. God shows himself. He manifests himself to Israel. Israel was to keep his gaze fixed on God and mirror God's manner of living and loving by its own way 
of conducting and behaving itself. Um, and so sin not only ruptures that relationship, but it also ruins uh, the covenant partner's vocation to be God's living image in the world. And along with that, it it's a kind of defacing of God. Because, again, no one has ever seen God. God intends to make himself visible in and through his covenant beloved. He shows Israel enough of himself such that Israel is called to imitate this God and thereby render God visible to the nations. When Israel turns away from God and runs after false gods or does its own thing, Israel becomes a counterfeit son, a false image, and God's glory is no longer in evidence in this world. In a way, they've not in ruining their own vocation to be his living image, they've served to deface him. He is now uh, unable to be known in the way that he intends. If, did you follow me with yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's that's sin, and you see, there's so much more to it, um, and, and we, we Christians have to have a bit, yeah. Okay, uh, so there, that's sin, and so then I said, well, how is God, how is He going to bring about the elimination of sin? God does never step out of this relationship of of love. He never changes His pattern. We might say in this way, God is the immutable, unchanging God. His love is steadfast. And even when his partner spurns his embrace and leaves him, uh, he will nonetheless, uh, he does only one thing. He still is intent on fathering his beloved to be his mirror image. But this time, under the conditions of the sin ruptured, God... uh, sin ruptured relationship um so now god sets about so showing himself to his beloved but what now he must show is his glory a glory that includes now the manifestation of his passionate involvement with his beloved turned sinner. He now shows his glory in showing his beloved, his unfaithful beloved, his willingness and almighty power to endure his beloved's felt absence, to endure it with a kind of heartache. It's there in scripture. God's heart aches when his beloved spurns him and leaves him his embrace. But instead of withdrawing his love or revoking his love, God proves his love such that with an unchanging, all-powerful love, he endures the beloved's absence. He's willing to suffer being the forsaken God. And when he What he does, though, is he shows his beloved through his prophets. He shows the glory of of God as this all-powerful passion of love, a love that remains steadfast, 
even as it's willing to face sin and endure sin's effects on its end, it stays there and it bears being forsaken by his beloved. Through his prophets, God shows Israel that he loves Israel this much and that his power takes this form. And then he sends his prophets to manifest the glory of this all-loving, steadfastly loving God to his sinful people. And when they come to see that God's love is not withdrawn, despite its being wounded, pained by God's felt absence of his beloved, his beloved, his partner, is thereby moved to repent. This manifestation of the glory of God in terms of God's almighty passion of love, it has, it carries a potent efficacy. It has a power to evoke repentance, reignite filial love, and empower his beloved to mirror God's passion of love in the face of sin. But now on its side, in its role as the partner, turning around, letting God's love embrace it once again, and letting God's love shape it as his corresponding mirroring partner, it'll mean for for the sinful, now repentant uh, sinner, the beloved now converted back to God, it'll mean that he mirrors God. And so is the living image of God again. Notice how this is happening. Now he is, once that he's back in God's embrace, then he is willing, he, he mirrors the way God loves in a sin-ruptured relationship. And so he mirrors God's way of bearing the effects of sin, estrangement, distance, in filial love, in filial love. And, and by bearing the effects of sin in filial love, feeling heartache over God's absence, feeling grief over the separation and estrangement their sins wrought, that love suffering on the part of the covenant partner is what transforms the effects of sin into material for the expression of filial love, mirroring love, so that God, now under the conditions of a sin-ruptured relationship, the, the partner withdrew from God, forsook God. God feels it, and it hurts him in his, not in his being, but his, his, in his passion of love suffers the beloved's absence and yet endures this absence in such a way that he goes after his beloved, woos his beloved, shows his beloved that his own love is enduring and capable of facing and and bearing the sin rot distance. Becoming aware of this, the filial partner, ah, the hardness of heart melts and the heart though in melting gains a new strength. 
to endure also the effects of sin, the distance that their sins wrought. And in bearing that sin wrought distance as a filial beloved, they bear it away, they atone, and at the same time, they become the living image of this, of this God under this sort of sin-marred relationship. Now, Keith, did you follow me? <laughs> that's absolutely fantastic, yeah. <laughs> did, did you really follow me? I did. I think that's wonderful. I, that, I could just sit here all day and listen to you. I really could. I think listeners could, too. Can I ask you this? Because one of the, I don't want to say hallmarks, that's maybe the wrong word, but one of the, the, the features or the things that people often latch on to, and I love this, I love how you, you, you orient us between the, the God of the, New, of the Old Testament, we, we see him suffering. In the same way we see Christ suffering in the New, right? That, that yeah, makes, I yes. think, a beautiful bridge, a connection that, that I don't think that is readily apparent to everyone coming to this topic. That's, a, I think, a, a beautiful insight yes. that you're giving us here. But then the, the one thing that people do tend to latch on to is the idea of, of divine wrath in the Old Testament, yes. right? We'll see yes. this, this vengeful God, this wrathful God that, that we often can't then orient okay, with good. Christ on the cross. So okay. you, you do a wonderful job in the book of, of illuminating this for us. I wonder if you can grace us with some thoughts okay. on, on that. I'll give this a shot because, yes, the movement of the dancers becomes a little more complex. Um, and each each uh, dancer or, you know, the covenant partners um, play their role. Their movement takes a paradoxical form, a twofold form on each side that, that's paradoxical. So on the part of God, uh, the father of Israel, you know, Keith, that in my book, I don't simply dismiss um, the many references in the Bible to God's wrath. They, there are many, and, and they extend from the Old Testament into the New. Uh, so that's, that's there, yeah. and, and that's part of God's self-showing. But we need to heal the eyes of our hearts so that we can see the true character and purpose of God's wrath. So as I studied the scripture and, and I rely on first-rate scripture scholars and on my four theological guides, what comes to light is that God's wrath is real, but we need to understand it as the form that his love takes. It's, it's a modality of love. It's a form of love. It's the form that his love takes when it encounters whatever is opposed to or even hostile to the designs of his love. All right. This wrath, then, as a form of divine love, must never be set in opposition to God's love as somehow mutually exclusive in relation to God's love. No, it, it is an iteration of love. All right, how, how will we bring this, show this? So he, God, God now encounters, remember, we're the ones that sin. And so God, when he's faced with our spurning of his love, are yes, fleeing from him toward our own ruination. And all he aims at in wanting to embrace us 
is to bring us to beatitude and perfection far above our own even natural capacities. When he encounters that, yes, it wounds him. That's what I mean. And when God's God's pain is a form of God's love when in its exposure to sin, God's wrath is God's love in its opposition to sin. Notice it's one and the same God, one in the same mystery of God's passionate involvement with his beloved. This passionate involvement, when it is faced with our sin, it's exposed to that sin and knows hurt. It is opposed to that sin and is expressed in wrath. So wrath then is how God is going to, he is going to remain unswerving in his commitment to bring this dance to its climax, um, which means the fulfillment and the true happiness of his partner, his beloved. So his wrath actually has a strategic uh, purpose. In the Bible, more and more frequently, Keith, you will come to notice that God's wrath is signaled whenever Yahweh or uh, the people refer to God's, here's a movement, God's hiding his face. Time and again in the Bible, you'll see God's wrath is signaled when he hides his faith. So God's wrath is the form that God's love takes when it encounters the sins, opposition to God's love. And the form that God's love takes uh, in terms of wrath is a kind of self-concealment. God will hide his face. Um, and there are several layers of meaning uh, that, that revolve around this mystery of, of divine wrath. Number one, remember the, remember the vocation of the dancer, the dignity and glory of the, dan- the partner, the dance partner, is to be the living image of God in this world. When the partner goes rogue, spurns God's embrace, and becomes a counterfeit image, a false son, God can no longer in one respect remain near as if endorsing (laughs) the, the misconduct of his, of the one called to be his living image in the world. In some respect and in some way, he has to withdraw to signal, that's not my son. That's that one, that nation is is no longer reflecting my face, is no longer the place in which you will see my true character in this world. So God's wrath, again, it's a mode of his love. When he says, I cannot endorse that. I've got to signal to my partner himself, as well as the world at large, that's a false image. That's a counterfeit son. Okay, hides his face. Also, there's a, it's a strategic maneuver, a kind of strategic withdrawal, and that it's often the way in which the sinner wakes up and realizes, oh, Kreiminensky, this is, 
what I chose in spurning God's love and distancing myself from him is indeed a false life, false joys, um, et cetera. And they, they, it's sometimes often, it's only when we, God leaves us, lets us suffer, endure the consequences of our choice, here our choice of spurning him, when he lets us sort of experience the God-forsaken state that we chose for ourselves, that we come to our senses, that we come to our senses and at least begin to be open to uh, conversion, returning our ourselves toward God. And when, but, but we're not, a, no, I should say, okay, here's the paradox. So though on the one hand, God is hiding his face, his passionate involvement, his passion of love takes the form of hiding his face in order to signal to his beloved you're false, you're being false to me and to yourself, etc. Also, it's a way to wake you up. And, and by the way, you're going to see, sin becomes is this sort of reality that has effects and consequences that don't simply disappear once your heart is returned to God. And this is a mystery we can talk about probably another time, Keith, if you ever want me that back. But you know, sin is a, in the Bible is, is a profound mystery. And it really is, is it's not simply... Uh, reduced to the attitude of heart, such that once, if sin is not simply a heart turned away, sin is also, it includes the consequences that arise from this turning away. And those consequences, those those effects do not simply vanish. They don't simply disappear once the sinner converts and turns his or her heart back. No, that this, this, the converted partner, with, with filial love rekindled in the heart, now has to bring that love to bear on the effects of sin. Those effects and consequences have to be, have to be dealt with. And so what Yahweh does is, okay, on his side, on the one hand, he's turning his face, he's hiding his face so that, uh, you know, he's signaling to them, you're, you're, you're being false to yourself and, and primarily to me. But also he's by doing this, by hiding his face and letting them experience the godforsaken state that they've chosen. He is also, if you will, in his own way, still leading this dance because what he has to lead them to do is bear the consequences of sin, but with toning efficacy. So they've got to bear the consequences of sin, but with filial love now uh, being brought to bear on those consequences of sin. If the consequences of sin are primarily distance from God, estrangement from God, by God's, if you will, hiding his face, he is sort of keeping those conditions in play, the conditions of the effects of sin, but he remains close at the same time. If he hides his face, it's like a partner who can at the same time, he's, he's, he's turning his face away, but he's still embracing his beloved. And so I got to do this. So he's like, you can, you can imagine me in the classroom. I'm all over the place. So he's like, 
even if he turns his face away, which is purposeful and meaningful and revelatory of the false, falseness of the situation, he nonetheless remains near Israel and, and continues to uh, reach out to her, rue her, accompany her. Uh, so he accompanies her actually into um, this state of God estrangement. There he intends, there, under while she's still in the condition of um, God forsakenness, while she's still at a distance from him, she, he, he accompanies her incognito, such that in her sin-marred state, he can engender filial love in the partner's heart, such that the partner can bear the effects of sin, God estrangement, distance from God, but now out of love, such that those conditions, God estrangement, are being transformed from within. God is actually near in being the intimate, generative source of the very love whereby the partner converts and brings its its newfound or, or newly enkindled filial love to bear upon sin's effects. Sin's effects, distance from God, remain in play. Because remember, too, in, biblically speaking, God is also kind of hiding his face. Now, I say this much better in the book, but did, were you, did I lose you and your audience? Is this a, is this a part you're going to have to edit out? Well, but, I can't tell from the audience, but I'm loving every word of this Dr. Turek. This is just... Can I just share with you where this this dynamic is played out most, I think, beautifully is in Hosea. And it's especially in chapter two of the prophet Hosea, where God shows you that the the inner nature and and the purpose of his wrath. It's the inner nature is love. And the purpose of his hiding his face is to enable his beloved uh, to actually um, be, bear the effects of sin. Well, let me let me tell you. Here it is. Here's Hosea. First, I say this. I'm going to read. I, I'm going to read from page 69 in my book, where I talk about God's wrath is a modality of love that serves the salvation of his beloved. Just as God's self-concealment, that's the form that his wrath takes, is a modality of God's accompaniment that serves the atonement of sin. In the context of a sin-ruptured covenant, God can remain near his beloved while hiding his face. There's the paradoxical He can remain near while hiding his face. Consider what occurs between the Lord and Israel in Hosea, chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. Isaiah, actually Israel, forsakes the Lord by running after idols. Indeed, everything begins with God's statement that the land commits great harlotry by forsaking the Lord. The people have abandoned God. They have fled from him and turned to others. On his side, the Lord lets the people endure. He lets them endure the God-forsaken state they have chosen for themselves. He 
the forsaken God, lets his people suffer his absence. That's what he means by he hides his He lets them suffer his absence. In concrete historical terms, the Lord hands over Israel to Assyria in 722, and Israel is exiled there too. But what happens? So Israel is literally now geographically distancing from God, from the promised land. It's now at a geographical distance from God, once again, bespeaking that theological interior distance of God that was at the root of this calamity. But note this, though God conceals himself, he nonetheless accompanies Israel into exile. See chapter 2, verse 12 of Hosea. He's accompanying while he, under concealment. So God withdraws in order thereby to draw Israel back to himself. For in actuality, God's forgiving love goes in advance of his people, albeit incognito, for the purpose of converting their hearts and precisely under the the conditions of their their God-forsaken state, the effects of sin, bearing those effects in love, they they thereby atone. They thereby atone. Here's the uh, passage. It's so good. He says, I will allure her now. Notice who has the initiative in this dance. I will allure her. Yes, Assyria is leading the people, you know, uh, into exile. But God is saying from his vantage point, wait a minute. The lead dancer is still in the lead. He's still managing this, this situation. I will allure her now. He's going before his beloved. I will lead her into the wilderness, into exile, and speak persuasively to her. There she will respond to me as in the days of her youth, as on the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. There the dance will resume, all right? But notice what, this is just so marvelous. Just the fact that God has hidden his face such that the the, the people become vulnerable to their enemies and, and suffer a, a state of exile doesn't mean that God has utterly and, and exa- wholly abandoned his people. No, his abandon, it's a qualified abandonment. He is letting them experience the effects of their sins, but not by turning his back on them and he just folding his arms and saying, you're, you're on your own, toots. No, he has, he, he's going to allure her. He's, he leads her in this way. He's going to accompany his beloved into this state, into the effects of sin, the consequences of sin. He leads her there accompanies her there incognito and he has to be in a way be near as the one who's enkindling the very love whereby the the effects of sin will be born and thus atoned but he's he's also the partner still feels distance from god because god hides his face so that the effects of sin are really real and born and suffered and so atoned thereby now, did you follow me there, Keith? <laughs> that was that was fantastic. You know, this is already this already paints such a, a a different picture from somebody who who sees the cross as a mere act of punishment for Christ 
bore our sins and was and punished, and God turned his God the Father turned his face and uh, and forsaken and forsook Christ and and so on and so forth. The, the, the strong language of abandonment and of wrath and 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 vengeance and the, these this dark place yes, that. Right. You know that, that I that I encountered when I read was reading this children's book to our kids at Easter time yeah. and went, well, this doesn't this doesn't sit right. Uh, this is already so foreign to that. It it is, and yet Keith. I know. I know. It's also not. Yeah. yeah because because I, you know, if we fast forward to the cross, then, yeah. and, and I think in John's gospel, it is it, there's a paradox. It is both the hour of darkness. Yeah. It, there is the Father will hide His face. But we've known, and the son knows, that that's a strategic maneuver on the part of the lead lover. It's meaningful, and it means love, and it intends to enable his beloved to atone for sin such that the this reciprocal relationship is healed and be in harmony. Um, so it's the hour of darkness. The father does hide his face from his son, but at this, and that's what Mark and Matthew um they underscore when they have the last words of Jesus on the cross being, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry uh, that Jesus is giving expression to this experience of bearing the chief effect of sin, felt distance from God. The the father seems absent. Uh, he's, 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 he seems silent. Okay. So the son is plunged into in his human consciousness, he he is plunged into this sort of state of felt distance from God. And that's precisely in order that that he actually is dealing with the chief effect of sin. But at the same time, we find the other two evangelists, Luke and John, making sure that that the other aspect of this mystery is covered. So you have a uh, you know, Luke saying, Jesus last words, into your hands, Father, I, I commit my spirit. Notice, I'm going to do that dance thing there. He knows, he knows that what he's doing on his end as, as beloved son is indeed an act of filial love. And it's, it's an act of responsive love. Uh, into your hands, I, I commit my spirit. And the, the love by which Jesus lives and the love that he gives again as filial always points back to uh its fathering source uh the father who is the uh, initial lover and whose love remains at work in him um john will go to lengths to say have jesus well joe and i and jesus will say you know um i'm never alone the father is always with me uh and even in the the work he's about to do at the last supper, at the farewell, during the farewell discourse, Jesus tells them, listen, to see me is to see the Father. Again, notice in this way, to see the Father. The Father is always at work. The Father is always at work in me, always, uninterruptedly, at work in me. Believe this. Believe this because of the works I do. The father's work is to engender um, filial work. Paternal love is to engender filial love. And so the son can say, I'm about to perform the ultimate work of love. No one has greater love than to lay down his life for mankind, for his friends. 
No one has greater love than that. But that love, as filial love, is always signaling the presence and power of the Father's love at work in him. Whatever work the Son does always points back to the Father at work in him. The Son, he says, does nothing of his own. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Why? For the Father loves the Son. Notice who has the lead, the initiative. And he shows the son everything that he himself does. This self-showing of a love that's passionate and powerful is, is what evokes also in the son this mirroring ability to face sin and, and passionately with his own filial passion of love bear the effects of sin and thus atone for them. Did I make some sense for you? You see, the father is near and yet he's hidden. He's and, and that's, that is the pattern of paternal love as it works in his beloved to enable his beloved to atone for sin, to perform the work of filial love, perform that movement of filial love in turn. So this whole process of reciprocal love, paternal love and filial love, archetypal love and imaging love, plays out in terms of forgiving love and atoning love. Even in the, in the Old Testament, Keith, you see that, that forgiving love is what gives rise to repentance. God doesn't wait for uh, his, the sinners to repent before he forgives them. No. It, God will, through his prophets, show his people, you knuckleheads. You know, I, you're, you're, from the beginning, when I first chose you, there was nothing in you that merited my choice. This is an utterly gracious, it's a gratuitous, unmerited gift of love I tender toward you. And even after sin, he doesn't wait for their repentance. His, his love is forgiving from the start, and I like to play with the word forgiving, like F-O-R-E dash giving. F-O-R-E like in foresight or foreknowledge, it comes before. It's forgiving love. God will give his love, merciful love in advance, that enables his beloved to convert, that induces uh, conversion of heart, contrition uh, in, in his beloved, and thereby you know, the, the beloved then can move on in a tone. But the father remains the, the one who takes the initiative and, and continually accompanies and sustains his beloved's work of love against sin. On the father's side, it's called forgiveness. On the son's side, it's called atonement. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. And nowhere, nowhere in there... I know we're in here in your book that I'm putting my hand down on here and you can't see it in the camera, but the, is this, this, uh, juridical language, this punishment language, this, there's, there is an element, as you say, of God hiding, hiding his face from, from the sun in, in that sense to, to bear the weight of sin there. But it isn't, it isn't this idea of, of Christ, of us being miserable sinners and, and God taking all that and punishing, punishing his son in this, oh, in no, those no, no, kind no. of words. Right? No, no, there is no, 
There is no taint of violence on the part right. of, of right. divine love. No. When in the cross event in particular, you see that the only violence on display there is exhibited by those under demonic influence. Um, God is not expressing his wrath in violent fashion. And going even when your reader, your audience, should they pick up the book, go back to chapter one on the Old Testament, and you already see that God is gradually purifying his people's understanding of divine wrath. It's not exhibited in, in... in terms of uh, violence, venting violent rage uh, against his partner or his beloved. No, it's, again, it's a a strategic, it's a form of love that actually aims to bring his beloved to conversion and reconciliation. Um, One little pithy way that I... I say this and more is that, and I, I, I already, I already talked about this, but I, it's a nice pithy way to sum this up where it's, we too often get it wrong. We think that the, um, let's see, that the atonement and specifically the, the work of atonement performed by Jesus Christ that that work of atonement results in the Father's love, as if the Father's love was revived or jump-started on account of seeing, his seeing love in his Son. No, we've got it backwards. The crucified Son, his work of atonement is the result of the Father's love. It does not result in the Father's love being revived or jump-started, as it were. Everything, everything is to the glory of God the Father, such that even John's Gospel and my book take seriously the hour of darkness. The, the, the effects of sin should, it should never be trivialized. The effects of sin are dire. Um, and the hour of darkness in, in no way... Um, airbrushes, you know, if we were, the way it's depicted in scripture doesn't air, airbrush the real evil and the damage that, that sin causes. But at the same time, that darkness, God shines on, his light shines in the darkness. That hour of darkness is at the same time and primarily the hour of glory. And what we Christians come to realize is that God works because God had to save us while we were yet sinners. God enters into our darkness. See, he leads, he he follows and accompanies us into our God-forsaken condition. And, And there he fathers us as his living image once again. His work of fathering his living image is is his glory, Keith. The glory of God is to be found in his sons who live as his authentic images, who, who live in love in mirroring fashion. 
that's his glory. It's his glory is not found in self isolation, and just him sort of pronouncing all his divine attributes. No, no, no. His his real glory is found in the beloved he begets, in in, in the one to whom he turns and to whom he communicates his love and his gift of life. And it's in that other, in that beloved, that God's glory is seen. And so even on the cross, when the son, I say in my book, it's precisely as the forsaken, the forsaken one, the God forsaken, as the God forsaken, this the hour of darkness, the son also reveals the forsaken God. And he's bringing glory back to God. It's, he is God's, he's showing the face of the father who is facing sin. And he's showing the face of the loving father um, on the cross and from the cross. But under the, I want to say under the shadow of death though still, and in the dark, and where I'm going with this, and you might have to edit more of this out, but I, I want to fast forward to chapter three, though, where we talk about today and we talk about uh, the secularized world in which we live. I mean, today, more than ever, our Western culture, under the influence of secularism, is designed to um, push God to the margins of our minds it's designed uh, to foster a kind of forgetfulness of God and a false sense of independence and autonomy from God. It's, it, it's, it's a deliberate, but sort of God forsaken state. You, you know what I'm, it's a state in which God is absent. We're not, we're not building huge cathedrals anymore. You've got an insurance building over there and, you know, <laughs> new condos over here, but, in our secularized society, we feel the absence of God, I think, more keenly, even in so, simply insofar as we lack the monuments of faith, the monuments to God's presence. And so this, one of the reasons it's important to uh, recover a spirituality of atonement today is that we Christians, indeed everyone, now we find ourselves in um, our modern age, an age um, in which God seems absent. And instead of becoming desperate and hopeless, we should by now know God's pattern of acting and know how he works. We should by now have gained night vision to see God, to heal the eyes of our hearts, to see God in the dark, in the dark. The Holy Spirit gives us night goggles to see God in this hour of darkness, in the dark. But no, like with Hosea again, I'm, I'm with you. I've accompanied you. I'm not going to thoroughly forsake you. Yes, what you're suffering does bespeak sin. And, and, and intentional distancing from God's authority and God's rule, God's presence and power. But God remains with us 
And he means to show us that wake up, let me turn back to me, turn your, open your hearts to me and allow me to father you into my living image. Father, you shape you to my living image such that you, I will empower you with filial love to bear the consequences of sin. In our modern age, primarily in terms of an apparently God-forsaken state, and to suffer God's absence in these terms, but with love, to atone, and to atone not only for our sins, but for the sins of all. And we can do this, of course, only in Christ and with Christ and through Christ. Christ is the Son. We are sons in the Son. He is the vine. We're just branches. But that life that that courses through the vine to the branches is that spirit of sonship, of filial love. And it means to blossom. It means to empower us to enact our filial love over against the effects of sin, to bring our filial love to bear on God's seeming absence, for example, in this world. <laughs> Are you still with me, Keith? Oh, so, I guess. Fantastic. What day is it? Um, I, don't, know, I, I don't know, I'm, but I'm happy to be here. Wherever day this is, wherever we are, this is fantastic. I, I wanted to ask you one more thing, and I was looking in the sure. book here for the page, but I should have written it down here. Because I wanted to, and I think you've, maybe this is, maybe you've ended here in a better place than I would end by asking this question, but I want to ask it anyway and just see where we can go. But you, you talk about the idea of displacement versus emplacement. Yes. I look at this and the idea of our, our mission of what's next, where do we go yes. from here? And I think this this really struck me as being something yes. so powerful in, in how we can carry this forward and understand yes. this. And as you as yes. you so so articulately describe this, the secular world we find ourselves in where God seems to be really hiding us. I'm doing this that you were doing now. Yes, 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 yes. That's why I kiss my wife. I hide my face. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She's gonna kill me. Uh, I, you know, can you talk for a second about that idea of yes. the displacement? I think that's so wonderful—a place for us to, to end as we look forward. Yes, I will, Keith. I may be um, overdoing it when it comes to to this, <laughs> to illustrating this mystery by uh, in terms of these dancers. Okay, but let's say that what does sin do already in the in the Old Testament? Sin. Um, is a deliberate sort of um, is a deliberate displacement really on, on the part of Israel. It leaves its place as God's covenant partner. God won't simply replace it. What God wants is to reemplace, reestablish His beloved in His embrace. And and for and they've got work to do. The love that God will engender in the hearts of His beloved, the love He fathers in His sons, is love that is meant to. Uh, result in good works to the glory of God and to the betterment of, of creation. Well, sin, of course, ruptured this relationship. It disrupted this stance. So this son comes, the eternal son, the eternal beloved, the eternal partner of the father. And he comes to, he's going to reemplace us reestablish us as sons in the son he doesn't come just to take our place and just say 
pops, you know, God, the father, Hey, it's just, <laughs> it's just you and me, you know, it's just you and me. I don't even know why we bothered with her. No, he comes, he, we were, and I, I spend a great deal of time in, in the early part of chapters two and three to talk about how scripture says mankind is created in the son before the father. And we were created always for uh, b- divinization in the sun. We were created always to be more than mere creatures. We were created in order to be elevated to a, a share in a place in our, the sun's place before the father in this divine dance of love between father and son. We were, we were always planted in, created in the sun. Sin we left that place and turned away. The son is sent by the father to gather us back into his place, his filial place before the father. And so what I'm saying here is his work, he does that primarily by means of atonement. Atonement gives rise to Uh, It results in not simply our being displaced so that we always remain outside on the, you know, like, like not dancers at all. We're just standing at the outskirts of the gym, watching the father and the son, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. There's the image, but no, we are the, the, the son, the fruit of the father, the fruit of the work of forgiveness atonement that culminates in the cross event, the cross of Jesus Christ, issues in the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is the gift of divine sonship. It is this what the Spirit does. It's poured out in our hearts in order to draw us into a share in this filial life, the son's way of being divine, and now also his way of being human. The spirit attunes us to the son's, um, the son's relationship with the father, attunes us to the way the son receives from the father and, and answers to the father. And so the spirit is given to draw us personally and concretely into this communion of love, this this dance, this covenant of love and life. It, in that sense, what Christ does is not displace us. He comes and represents us in such a way that his representation of us before the Father culminates in drawing us all in him, with him, and through him, to live and to act, and so to work, do works of love before the Father. Does that make sense? I think that's, that's wonderfully said. It's a difference between pushing us out of the way at, to, to yeah. actually empowering yes. us in that sense, right? if I can put it in that, those cross, yes. cross terms. That's exactly, because that's all that God the Father does is Father, his living images, and his fatherhood doesn't just end then with the incarnate son being fathered completely. It is accomplished, you know, with his last words. No, the son is sent to reestablish us as sons in the son, to open us up for us now the possibility of being of our being born of God, begotten of God, 
by grace as adoptive sons in the sun. And we spend our days now, however dark they may be, we spend our days in enacting this filial love before the Father. We do it in and through and with Christ, because of Christ. But we, but we do it. Uh, and in this sense, we might say, we, we're kind of, we're also to the glory of the Son, because we are the ones in whom the Son's work sort of blossoms, is consummated. The Son is not content to be the sole beloved of the Father. He, he is so for us, for us and for our salvation. He is so for us that he, he opens his sonship to be this all-inclusive reality, this all-inclusive space in which we were originally created and to which we're all called to thrive and no beatitude. He's not going to be son alone. He, he doesn't want to be beloved of the father alone. He wants, he, he's the son, but in whom countless sons know the father, know the father's love, return the father's love, glory in the father's love. And that's part of the son's bliss, if I'm making sense. This is part of the son's great happiness, is to open up his sonship to all of us. And you can, if we had scripture here, we'd be showing, you know, passages where the son is assuring his disciples, this is all for you. And in, in, to degrees and dimensions that you can barely imagine. I am for you. The Father is for you. The whole Trinitarian life now. And once we decided to create for the sake of drawing creation into our divine life, we're now for you. We're for you. And sin, this is what sin is that people would understand. We could get to we have to get to the young people about this. Sin is just this. It's it's really, it's kind of this this uh, abortion in a sense it's miscarrying or aborting this divine life that the entire trinity's paternal filial life everlasting life infinite love wants to extend itself to us and in us and then even through us to other people so that we know the joy of loving others and sin is it, it aborts that tries to thwart that whether or not with subjective intentionality that's the objective intentionality of sin and so there's it's it's what should i say it's it's got superhuman rank i mean it's so we don't want to trivialize sin it's that serious and it's that i almost want to say mysterious in the sense of truly being nonsense the the mystery of god is that that uber intelligibility the mystery of sin is just sheer nonsense i okay i'm sorry keith you got me on a roll and you (laughs) (laughs) well you can come back anytime you want we can do two more hours on on sin if you'd like dr turek because that would be a thrilling topic as well (laughs) keith okay if, if i can ask you as the author of this book what was the best takeaway for you 
Gosh, it, it, I think you have. This is a first, by the way, on this show of, of the tables being turned on me. So, so thank you, Doctor Turek, for taking that liberty. <laughs> I the 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 compelling picture you paint of of God in the Old Testament, the idea of that that wrath, right, and the suffering, those two things, that in the Old Testament, and how that is also how it fits so well in the yes. New Testament. We see that suffering. God in the Old Testament and the suffering Christ on, on on the cross, and and the wrath of God in the Old Testament and the wrath of God uh, and wrath I think we could put in air quotes because it's right. often misunderstood in the New Testament. I think the picture you paint of those two those two perspectives say on God and how they fit so well together. I think this. I mean. And I'm coming at this from a perspective of, of being a long-time evangelical and reading things about atonement and of justification and satisfaction and, and, and salvation history. The picture that you paint is, is, for me, one of those things that you become Catholic and you see all these pieces fit together, right? And this, for me, is those pieces fitting together you're, you're drawing on yes. your four guides which sounds like four know, guys I sometimes i think it's funny i uh, funny because I, I picture you, you in four guys four you guys. know these, yeah. these guys just My showing you. i love yes i love that right this to me just shows the beauty again of 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 the wholeness of the catholic faith and co and how coherent yes. these pieces these pieces fit together and i tell you other places in, in Christianity, those pieces don't fit like they do here in this way. And I think that is something that you so well illuminate in, in your masterful work, Dr. Turek, if I can put it that well, way. God bless you for saying that. But I, I, I'm, I'm mindful of what, you know, Chesterton has that wonderful saying, but it's, it's commonplace really how what characterizes Christianity really should be its capacity to recognize the both and, you know, the, the both yeah. and. And I was trying to do that. Uh, I often have recourse to um, a notion of paradox, but it's it's the both and. And instead of um, uh, just just dealing with scripture, trying to interpret it in terms of fragments, no. Once you're more comfortable yeah. with knowing that this piece could actually be coupled with this piece, and there's a there's a an unforeseen intelligibility about coupling them together paradoxically that, that it sheds it sheds new light <laughs> and that happens time and again with sacred scripture and with the um great masters of theology and spirituality in our tradition um, i gain much from them too and uh, i do as a carmelite i i want or a former carmelite anyway i do give uh, a, a nice shout out to saint therese in chapter three of the book because there's, there's a, a young woman, a brave and, and daring um, woman who lets God uh, father uh, her, uh, bring her to love atheists, to kind of change places with, with the unbelievers, the atheists of her day, such that she willingly suffers their uh, kind of subjective experience of God's absence. And she does so for them out of love and thereby gives glory to her Christ and, and his father. No, anyway, it's, it's, it, this, it's a mystery that's at the center of 
sacred scripture. And so we could be talking about it forever and a day. (laughs) Well, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here on the show, for for this conversation. I know listeners will will love this. I have felt very honored to be able to just be here under this call to to watch and listen to you teach and, 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 and illuminate this for us. It's been such a thrill for me, honestly. Thank you, Dr. Turek. Um, and I do, I want to point listeners towards this book. It's available from Ignatius Press. It's the best place to get it from. It's also on Amazon and at your local bookseller, as well as Atonement, Soundings in Biblical, Trinitarian, and Spiritual Theology. Anywhere else you want to point listeners towards to to to, to dig more into this or, or to, I don't know if there's a place they can follow you or follow the work that you're doing or anywhere else you want to point them to? Well, do I, I do know that Mark Brumley at Ignatius Press is um, planning to do a, a kind of series of podcasts with me about the book. Now, whether or not that'll concretize remains to be seen, but that could pot that could possibly happen. Um, I would also suggest that when they read my book, pay close attention to the footnotes because the footnotes also point the reader on yes. to um, really some, some wonderful uh, resources. Uh, what else? Gosh, you know, I don't have a, a blog, you know, post or website or, or anything. Um, but I tell you what, I do love you can tell I do like talking, which can you, can you understand why I, I eventually discerned I had to leave the Carmelites away. It does make sense though. Um, so even if viewers, if they want, just want to contact me at St. Patrick's Seminary, St. Patrick's Seminary and University in Menlo Park, California. Uh, I've got an email address on our, our website and I'm, I'm, I really love to lead retreats, to give retreat conferences or, or talks during Lent, especially, or any other occasion on, on atonement, on the Trinity, um, anything that concerns really um, the glory of God. Uh, yeah, and, and our, our vocation. Well, that's fantastic stuff. Dr. Turek, thank you so much for being here this week. It's honestly such a pleasure. I want to say God bless you and this work you are doing. It's, it's yeah, thank you. This has been a real Likewise, pleasure. Likewise, Keith. This was so much fun. Um, God bless you and your work. Thank you. <laughs> thank Bye-bye. you. Take care. friends. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I gotta say, absolutely fabulous. I didn't know what to expect, and you don't often sometimes know what to expect when you encounter different authors or theologians as you, you book them on the show and you have some dialogue back and forth in advance. The second that Dr. Turek joined the conversation before I even hit the button to record, I knew we were in for an absolute doozy of a show, and it did not disappoint. That was thrilling. Hopefully you enjoyed that too. Let me know cordialcatholic at gmail.com what you thought of that conversation. The show notes for this this show are at the Cordial Catholic.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Cordial Catholic. We're on TikTok as well for short little apologetic videos I've been doing on the as I drive into work, which has been a lot of fun to get some traction movement there. If you want to watch this episode, which there's the watching is, I, I promise you, enhances the conversation because Dr. Turek is very 
animated in her in conversation style. It's a thrill to watch her on the screen. That's at youtube.com slash the cordial catholic. And we are also on Facebook at the cordial catholic. If you want to help underpin this show, head over to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic or paypal.me slash cordialcatholic to help support this show on a monthly basis or on a one-time basis as well. And hey, if you're listening, please tell a friend, leave a rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. And really do pray for me, please, friends. Pray for the mission of this show. Know that I'm praying for you too each and every week and i'll talk to you again next week friends thank you so much for listening take care and god bless This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordial cafe a special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.